Welcome to the latest Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, standing up to the power of the established press and the moneyed interest behind it. We're available online, in our monthly newspaper, and now this fortnightly podcast with me, Adrian Goldberg. Our work of holding politicians and powerful institutions to account is entirely funded by you, our readers and listeners. So please subscribe if you can. It costs from as little as £29 a year. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. Now, the Byline Times is fast becoming a home to some of the finest misfits and mavericks in British journalism, among them the brilliant John Sweeney, a journalist whose CV includes both Panorama and Newsnight on the BBC. He's asked tough questions of both Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. He held the Church of Scientology so memorably to account, and for the Byline Times, he's written about the close of UK politicians and the media. John, hello, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Happy with that introduction? <laughs> Misfits, cranks, nutters, weirdos, and people, frankly, who've got nowhere else to go. That's me. Well, it's perhaps a troubling commentary, isn't it, on British journalism at the moment, John, that someone with as impressive a CV as you have doesn't have anywhere to go. Why do you think that is? Well, it's funny. So, um, uh, by the way, the uh, the noises off is my dog Bertie. <laughs> I've, I've stuck up my kind of um, studio, irritatingly close to his dog bowl, <laughs> and uh, and he was the dog bowl was there first. So, so last year, as many of your listeners may know, I was trying to do a panorama about Tommy Robinson, and I was trying to um, to get one of his former supporters who'd fallen out with him to give a, an interview to Panorama. The whole thing was was seriously dark in a way that I didn't understand or anticipate. It was a, a dark moment. One of the things she told me was that um, this woman, Lucy Brown, she'd fallen out with him, and um, he put his online attack mob against her, and one of the things they threatened her with was an acid facial. Somebody else online threatened her with rape with a barbed wire glove. And I couldn't imagine somebody in this position who's being attacked in this horrible way online would actually switch back to the source of those attacks, but that's what happened. And she secretly filmed me whining and dining her. And I'd like to think that I'm essentially um, an old Fleet Street reporter. Well, that's what I am. I used to work for The Observer for years and years and years. And what I was doing was whining and dining a contact so that she would talk. But I, I can't pay her any money. And this is a kind of, um, it's a kind of confidence boosting session. And there's a whole bunch of stuff where she says, let's have some brandies. And I said, no, let's have some limoncellos. And this was edited entirely to my discomfort. Tommy Robinson sticks it out. And the BBC management, who I have to say, I call the jellyfish. <laughs> they, they really, really, really didn't like it. And what happened was that I was being attacked online and because I'm a relatively well-known face in Britain because of things like Scientology and me going to North Korea undercover by people on the street, including I knew Larry McKee a little bit. She's the wonderful uh, Irish reporter who was shot dead by the horrible neo-fascistic real IRA in, in Derry. And I went to her funeral and I, I tweeted a little bit, and that placed me in Belfast, in the grounds of Belfast Catholic Cathedral. 
and the Tommy Robinson supporter came up to me as I was leaving the funeral, walking away and challenged me about my anti-Irish remarks. Now, obviously, you know, watching me pissed, it's embarrassing. It wasn't shaming, I would say. I don't think I said anything terrible. It was embarrassing, but it was a moment when I felt got at by both the far right, Tommy Robinson and his supporters, and also by BBC management for not being the perfect person. While at the same time, there are BBC reporters who've been taking big corporate gigs, one from Big Tobacco, one from a company that sells passports to rich people in Malta, a third, doing all sorts of ghastly corporate gigs. And I just felt, come on, management, support me here. And they didn't. Eventually, I left the BBC after 17 pretty happy years. And then, you know, where do I, um, I'd like to carry on being a journalist because I'm a, I think I'm a good reporter. But, you know, do I work for the Independent or the Evening Standard? Well, no, I don't because it's owned by Yevgeny Lebedev, who I've just written a piece for the Byline Times about, who's just been made a lord. And this is a man, he's Russian, or he, you know, got a, had a Russian passport, he's now a British citizen. But essentially, his father was a colonel in the KGB. And Yevgeny Lebedev, his father's still around. When Boris Johnson celebrated his election victory last December, it was a double party which Yevgeny threw because the other person in the party was Alexander, the former KGB colonel, because it was his 60th birthday. Now, that's the clue, folks. You don't retire from the KGB. It's called the FSB these days. But you don't retire from that organisation. And I did a story with people familiar with the security protocols around this, saying that Yevgeny, the son of the KGB man, was a security risk in the spring. But by June, the Cabinet Office, informed by a special branch, had rebaptized that into being he wasn't a security risk, so he became a lord. And he, of course, would deny absolutely that he's any kind of security risk. John, tell me where this all started for you, though. When you left the BBC, you said, I'm going off to be a troublemaker elsewhere. And that elsewhere is now, happily, the Byline Times. Where did you first develop this taste for making trouble as a journalist? I'd like to say that it's good trouble, not bad trouble. And I think there is a distinction. But I... I this sounds a bit weird, but I have a strong sense of right and wrong. And essentially, I also, I love sleeping in and I love going to the pub. And those are my my various ex-wives will tell you that's all true. <laughs> I, I seem to, I get on with all of them. But I do like storytelling and I like drinking. And the only thing that keeps me on the straight and narrow is a sense of, of injustice where power power and money says to somebody, you shut up or it'll be bad for you. I hate that and I get going. So one of the, thing about, uh, one of the things that upsets me about Yevgeny Lebedev is I know uh, Navalny, I've met him, um, this is Alexei Navalny, the effective leader of the opposition in Russia who's just been poisoned. He's in a coma in a German hospital right now. And I know this guy and I like him. And we're, um, when we see each other, hi, you know, how are you, Alexei? How are you, John? Stuff like this. And this guy's in a coma. Yevgeny Lebedev has said nothing about this case, nothing. 
So it's that kind of stuff that gets me going that says, okay, what, what's happening? I'd also, by the way, I, you know, I'd like to, um, I'd like to work for the Telegraph. Can I write a piece for the Telegraph? But no, I can't because I've done, I think it was in 1996, I did a piece about the Barclay Twins and the Observer and also the BBC and the Barclay Twins, uh, the strange elderly twins, one of whom, Sir Frederick, is now suing Sir David's sons, not Sir David, but Sir David's sons, for bugging him over the ownership of the Ritz, uh, all concerned deny any wrongdoing. But Anyway, the Barclay Twins in the 90s sued me for criminal libel in France for my remarks I made on uh, BBC Radio Guernsey, which you could hear in France, and uh, the BBC apologised on my behalf, and I apologised, and um, a big fine, 20,000 francs, which about 2,000 quid was paid, and then I did a panorama about them in 2013. No apologies the journalism was sound that time, but I can't work for the Telegraph. So I can't work for the independent evening standard, the Telegraph. Yeah, we should point out that for people who don't know, the Telegraph is owned by the Barclay Brothers. I can't work for, well, I couldn't work for the Express for a long time because it was owned by um, Richard Desmond, who I've done a, um, a piece of the Byline Times about Robert Jenrick and his relationship with this former pornographer, uh, Richard Desmond, who no longer owns the Express, but did. And I did a piece actually for the BBC for Five Lives Reports, which was your old programme in around about 2002, Adrian. Yes, that programme, Five Live Reports, morphed into Five Live Investigates, which I presented for a decade. But you managed to get into trouble presenting that as well, John. I didn't get into trouble. The story was simple, was that the allegation was that Richard Desmond had ripped off the Gambino crime family and the Gambinos were annoyed about it and his dog was killed in strange circumstances. And somebody who used to work for him said he paid... $2 million to shut them up. Now, Richard Desmond denies this. The man who told me that uh, this had a conviction for um, perverting the course of justice by holding up a sawn-off shotgun against the head of a man who's a potential witness in a kind of gang-related court case before the trial proper. And this man had been a company uh, secretary for one of Richard Desmond's porn companies, all concerned, deny any wrongdoing. So the list is, I can't work for the Evening Standard, the uh, Independent, the Daily Telegraph, the Express then. I actually did do a piece of the Express recently, a little bit about a novel I wrote, Useful Idiot, but never mind. It's not an autobiography. The list goes on. I've fallen out with the Mail on Sunday over Peter Hitchens' denial of the reality of COVID. I started um, doing little films on Twitter, which got quite a, a lot of pickup, saying this is the man who kills his readers. And he got very angry with that. So I haven't, I've yet to be invited to do uh, stuff lately for the Mail on Sunday. And there's the Murdoch papers, which are okay some of the time because they've got good journalists, but there's Rupert Murdoch is ruling, ruling the roost. So... You would expect, wouldn't you? There are, there's this wonderful opportunities out there in Fleet Street, and I don't think there are. And so it is good to work for Byline Times because Peter Jukes, the, the editor, is brave and good, and there are lawyers, and there's a proper editorial process. 
But if you've got a story with good evidence and it's tested, you can't just put any old rubbish out there. It goes up. And a problem I had, certainly under Tony Hall, I'm hoping the new director, uh, General Tim Davies, who I know a bit, will be a complete change. And I'm, 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 I wish him well. I wish him very well. But I found towards the, the back end of my BBC career, I found it really depressing, struggling to get stories on air. And it, took, it would take days and days and days and sometimes weeks to do stories in particular about Russian power and money, Moscow gold, interfering with British politics. So, for example, I did a story I was very proud of about Aaron Banks and his missus, who's Russian-born, Katya Padarina, who owned a company in Gibraltar, which we dug away at, and we found that this company is called Ural Properties, and they own two flats on the top of the sky rise overlooking the Royal Naval Base in Portsmouth. Yeah. Now, that is like, that's a bit fishy, all concerned with denying your wrongdoing. You did call for Tony Hall, the now-departed Director General of the BBC, to quit, I think, last November. And he quit, and he quit, he quit. Well, yeah, indeed. What did you think had gone wrong at the BBC, more broadly than your difficulty with getting one or two stories out? So, I love the BBC. The BBC has been a teacher for me, a great teacher for me. It's informed and educated and, gosh, entertained me my entire life. Doctor Who, David Attenborough, Newsnight, Panorama, the news, everything. I love the BBC. I'm a loyal licence fee payer. The problem is that Tony Hall, I think, was passed over for the job of Director General three or four times. There was a reason for that, because although fundamentally a nice man, a decent man, He's not a fighter, not a scrapper. The boss I, I liked a lot, though we had issues, obviously, was um, Mark Thompson. Now, Mark, um, when I did something, your listeners look it up. It's, it's called uh, Scientology and Me. You can see the clip of me losing my temper with the Church of Scientology. Anyway, Mark Thompson's the Director General, and eight times John Travolta, and big ambassador of Scientology, along with uh, Tom Cruise. Ex-members, of course, say it's a space alien cult. Travolta phones up Mark Thompson's office eight times to get me the sack. And Thompson got his staff to uh, answer the call and say, I'm terribly sorry, the director general's in a meeting. <laughs> because, because he knew what was going on. And there was something good, I think, about Mark Thompson in terms of getting that right. He then went on to the New York Times, where he's been a success and their subscriptions have ro uh, risen in part due to the um, enemy of journalists called Donald Trump. Mark understood that to defend something as good as the BBC, you've got to be tough. Gustav Flaubert once wrote, when um, fighting for truth and justice, it's never a good idea to wear one's best trousers. <laughs> and I think the problem is that Tony Hall never quite understood that, and he's been out outfoxed, outgunned and outthreatened by um, the Conservatives in power. And the BBC has allowed itself to be reduced and intimidated and frightened. And so I think the last seriously tough programme about Putin uh, was made, certainly a TV programme, was made by me in 2018 called Taking on Putin. 
It's about Navalny uh, being poisoned the first time and also about his supporters being stabbed and tasered and generally intimidated. And there hasn't been one since. And I think that's in part because Tony Hall doesn't really understand what great journalism is about. And he's also hired a series of people underneath him who share his timidity. And that's not been good. I hope that Tim Davies, so I know a bit, he was acting director general for six months before Tony Hall uh, came back, for maybe three or four months before uh, Tony Hall became director general. And Tim, Tim was very good. And he ran the, uh, what happened was we'd, we'd made the film about the Barclay twins and uh, George Entwistle killed it. And then George Entwistle had to resign. He was the director general for a very short space of time. And Tim Davies said, no, I saw him in the corridor and I said, are you going to run our film? And he looked at me and took a step back and smiled in a slightly measured way and said, it's on the top of the risk programs. And I always liked it when my program was on the top of that list. And under Tony Hall, those that didn't happen, or not, not often enough, because the programmes weren't made, or they weren't commissioned, or they were softened. So I'm hoping the BBC will go back to, to where it is. But for the moment, the Byline Times is, for me, the best place to commit the thing I like doing, which is journalism. <laughs> Big challenges ahead, though, aren't there, for Tim Davey? A lot of people questioning the validity of the licence fee in the 21st century. Obviously, the government's put pressure on the BBC to continue free licences for over 75s. And we live in a very changed media landscape with the arrival of streaming services like Netflix and so on, a time when people are questioning whether the BBC in its current form can be justified. I I think it can be because it's part of the glue of Britishness and it still delivers brilliant stuff. As an insider, I'm frustrated by its timidity. As a consumer, it's still great. It's the website I trust. I'm suspicious that, for example, yes, Netflix did the crown and it did the crown and it did the crown, but it hasn't really, it doesn't really do British culture. So that I think what happens if you kill the BBC, you will just get yet more Hollywoodization of British culture. And we'll see lots and lots and lots and lots of programmes which are fundamentally American in tone. And this, if you destroy the BBC, it will it will reduce the soft power of British culture around the world. And that's a mistake. I also think that it exists as a, as a kind of platform for creating and engendering great British talent. Now, there's a problem, and this is, sounds a bit weird, but I think there's a... But Tommy Robinson and his supporters, and I, he's a horrible man uh, and the far right, but they make a complaint that the white working class haven't been listened to enough, or working class people haven't been listened to enough, and I think that's true in some measure. Although I don't know if you can speak in this way, John. I'm somebody who is of white working class stock. I grew up on a council estate in Birmingham. Tommy Robinson and his ilk do not speak for me, nor do they speak for the other white working class people who grew up in the streets where I did. 
no, you're quite right, but the BBC in particular and the media as a whole um, needs to do better in addressing or at least representing people from your background. So a thing is the number of people who worked, for example, for Newsnight, who were posh, was through the roof. And there's a, there's a simple problem here. It's the cost of... When I, I first moved down to London from the Sheffield Telegraph in 1984, and on as a, a freelance journalist, I could buy a house in Hackney. You can't do that anymore. So actually, to work in the media these days, you need family money or to work in London. It's really difficult, really, really difficult. It used to be a working-class job, and it isn't anymore. And so the BBC isn't doing enough. Now, there was, I mean, comically, there were about three or four people who I identified and knew, and I was friendly with the BBC, who could be considered to be working class. What kind of stock, for want of a better word, did you come from? I'm kind of low, low middle class. But I lived in Manchester between five and ten, which is why I've got a slight northern accent. Then we moved to Hampshire, so I can, you know, when I'm about to be arrested, I'll go all posh. Hello, officer. And I help you. And my dad was from Birkenhead and my mum was from Liverpool. My mum was from Scotty Road or thereabouts in Liverpool, which is now Toxteth, Liverpool 8, that kind of area. My dad, Bulls Road East, Birkenhead, got a job as an apprentice at Camelads just before the war. The famous shipyard in Birkenhead. Yeah, the family team is Tranmere Rovers and became a ship's engineer in the Battle of the Atlantic. Neither of them went to university. After the war, my dad got a job as an insurance engineer and went to night school and and actually became a very successful or a successful engineer. But they were um, they were driven people, driven by memory of of some poverty in the thirties, and they wanted to do better. And I. And I've got that in my in my in my makeup as well, and I have a, a sense that in all the other things the BBC's got to do, it really should think about and reflect on the anxieties of working class people in Britain. And if there aren't enough working class people in the newsrooms or presenting the shows, that's a problem. And this is not just the BBC; it's also true of Channel Four, The Guardian, The Observer all the papers. Weirdly, well, in the 80s, papers like The Sun, bad as they were, you'd have more working class reporters on them than you'd ever have in something like The Guardian or The Observer. Having said that, I don't think that's true anymore. The, the media has become so posh. And I think that, you know, when you have a conference where nobody knows what it's like for somebody to be on... Um, unemployment benefit it's a problem because nobody registers that so that as a as, as a group of people the bbc didn't get that part of the community right and i think that's also part of the reason why the general expectation was that um people wouldn't would not vote for brexit they voted for brexit in uh, was a big surprise for a lot of people at the bbc and it's part because they they weren't properly plugged in to what ordinary working people think about things. I don't, I'm a passionate Remainer. I believe very strongly in the European project. One of the great heroes of my life was this wonderful Irish 
SDLMP, Northern Irish SDLMP, SDL, SDLP, John Hume, who, uh, never mind, I can't uh, get the initials right, at Strasbourg in something like 1983, it was, he stood up in a bar and sang Danny Boy so beautifully. This is the guy who faced down the IRA. This is the guy who stood up to the British Army in the 70s. This is a guy who believed passionately in Irish nationalism through the ballot box, through democratic means. And he was a great hero and a great European. And I love that man. He, he died um, very recently. There were some lots of wonderful tributes to the man. The idea that uh, journalists don't like politicians, that's not true. There are some politicians who you meet and you think, you are f cool. And John Hume was one. Barbara Castle was another. Dennis Healy, who I never got to know properly, was a third. He'd been a beach master at Anzio. You know, and, and these are people who loved Europe, who Dennis Healy really, really learned German. He, he loved Germany, having fought Nazi Germany like a tiger when it was necessary. These are people who believed passionately in the European idea. And the distance between them and people like Nigel Farage, who, did, who were far too young to have ever done anything in the war because, you know, they're, they're just too young. The idea that um, I'm very, very proud of, of what Britain did during the Second World War. It was wonderful what my father did in his generation, my mum's generation. They were amazing. They were great. But they did it to save Europe and they did it also, for example, things like the Special Operations Executive. It's a wonderful thing that Churchill set up, set Europe ablaze. These people, there are tons of people in it who lost their lives, were Europeans, who were striving for a, a, a better vision of, for our continent. So um, I've got that off my chest. Um, next. <laughs> Having said, though, at the same time that big media organisations like the BBC, or perhaps in particular the BBC, were not sufficiently in tune with those, for want of a better phrase, white working class voters who voted Brexit. Yeah, but I think that they've been conned. I think they've seriously been conned. But at the same time, you've got to understand that. I also think that um, I'm worried about the culture wars. The Observer sent me to South Africa in 88, and I went there undercover, and it was... Mandela was still in prison when I was there, and I went to a, a demonstration in Soweto, and I've been tear-gassed by the, by the apartheid state. So I'm under no illusions about, for example, how dark that state was. None at all. But at the same time, you have to tread carefully with the culture wars because there becomes a point where you kind of go, well, you're, you know, you're common, you're vulgar, you haven't got it um, goodbye. And, and, and that just feels wrong. Like, I am a massive critic of people like Nigel Farage, Tommy Robinson, obviously, Donald Trump, who I've accused to his face of consorting with somebody who's connected with the mafia. Trump didn't like it and walked, uh, walked out on me. At the same time, there are people in the States who are Trump supporters, who admire him, who are good people, because he's got something like four out of ten Americans are on his side who are going to vote for him. Now, that's an enormous number of people, and you've got to understand, we, we've got to try harder to understand, not the leader. I don't like the leader. But why are these people 
who were good people. If you met them, they would be sweet and kind. If you were in trouble, they would look after you. By extension, John, 52% of British voters voted for Brexit, despite what Stuart Lee says. Stuart Lee, a famous joke, he said, not all people who voted Brexit are racists. The others are c***. And actually, although it's a very funny line, it does a disservice to our democracy to write off people who you happen to disagree with simply because you disagree with them. Yes, and and the other thing that that f***ed me up a bit, Adrian, was that I was the reporter on Newsnight who was continually asked to go to working-class areas and do vox pops of Brexit towns because nobody else dared. (laughs) And it it didn't, you know, my mum and dad are from Merseyside, uh, so I'm I'm not easily uh, intimidated. And I would work it out. I mean, I gave an interview to The Observer, and Tim Adams wrote it up beautifully. It's online somewhere. But it's absolutely true. I would go to places like Peterborough, and I I could do it in about 45 minutes. So you get off the train, get a taxi into town, and then the main square, I'd um, make a beeline for the person in the disability scooter with the WAF and SS stickers, leave or remain, leave. Uh, I'd then go to Waitrose, um, wait for somebody with glasses, and they'd normally turn out to be a professor of economics. And they'd, well, you know, make the case for remain. Um, I can remember one lady making it really um, beautifully, very concisely. And um, I said, are you a professor of economics? She said, no, I teach economics. And then, and then you go to sort of Argos, mum with three kids. I just want to get on with it. And then, okay, back, right, we've got all, all we need, quick piece of camera, get a taxi, and 45 minutes. But it's not journalism. That's not journalism. But what it was was a papering over of the cracks because there weren't enough people inside the BBC newsrooms who were working class or were from working class backgrounds. I would probably the person most in tune with working class backgrounds, as I said, I'm low, low middle class, but I'm not working class, on Panorama and Newsnight. And they got rid of me. Or they, anyway, eventually I left. But that's depressing. And also, you know, you still work for the BBC, but um, you're, um, you're also working for Byline Times. And that's depressing too, because there aren't that many people with your kind of, frankly, ghastly Birmingham accent. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you a little story, John, before we finish. But I had a conversation with the managing editor of Five Live just to try and get some sense after they had scrapped my programme, Five Live Investigates, which I presented every Sunday for a decade and which brought really top-line stories to BBC News Online and to The Breakfast News. I should say, not as a result of me, but thanks to a fantastic team that worked on that programme. And I was trying to say if I'd get any more work on Five Live. And the managing editor said, well, we do need people with accents like yours. And can you imagine saying to, I don't know, a black person, oh, yes, we do need more people with skin colour like yours. It was one of the most insulting assessments of my journalistic abilities, my radio presenting abilities that I've ever heard. But it's also, it's about, so that matters, that matters. 
because it's true there aren't enough people with your accent. It's important. It's important. There's something, by the way, there's um, one of the sweetest memories of something very dark. It's just, uh, it's just triggered, and I'll uh, give you a flavour of it. By the way, the BBC did try and um, sack me, and then the union said, um, have you ever had PTSD, uh, PTSD John, post-traumatic shock disorder? And I said, well, I have, actually. Anyway, eventually I saw a psychiatrist, and he, he said, have you ever had any... Uh, the first thing he said, but I really liked your film about Scientology. <laughs> and then, and then I was like, right, John, you're going to be okay here. But anyway, he started, anyway, have I ever had PTSD? And I went through the, the wars of Yugoslavia, and I lost a friend. And the guy said, listen, I've got to ask you some questions. We've only got half an hour left, and I'd only got to 1992. But there's a... Here's the point of the story. I did the Bataclan. I reported on that awful massacre. I interviewed a British bloke and his French girlfriend, and they had hidden amongst the dead while their phones rang relentlessly. Their mums and dads wanted to know they're okay. The moment they moved to answer the phone, they're going to be shot. It's awful in there. And they give us this wonderful interview then um, that goes out in Panorama. And then three days later, I'm in London. And I don't cry for any of it. Then three days later, there's a match between England and France. And the England fans are going to sing the Marseillaise. And there's a posh BBC reporter who says to a Brummy guy, do you know the words, the Marseillaise? And the Brummy says, I'm going to destroy the accent here. But he says, oh, no, but we can all um it, can't we? and I started sobbing and I couldn't stop so there is this about partly because it was the kind of sweet partly because it was the sweetness of the Brummie hmm. being a bigger human being than the um the, the posh BBC reporter hmm. and there's something about that, that that sympathy that international sympathy to our wonderful French friends in this awful moment so that's the kind of story that I want to tell. These are the kind of voices I, I want to hear more of. John, listen, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. Just to remind you, if you've enjoyed listening to this, and I certainly wouldn't mind sharing a pint with John on one of his many visits to the pub that he's confessed to. <laughs> I also must say, your dog's been fantastically well-behaved, John. Thank you. For, give, him a, give him a bone. Uh, if you want to read more by John and what a fantastic journalistic CV he's got, but more importantly, what a fantastic passion for journalism and for good troublemaking he still has. The Byline Times is the place to read his work and you can subscribe. And if you do subscribe, you'll support the work of fantastic mavericks and misfits like John Sweeney. For as little as £29 a year, just head over to the bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And don't forget to tell your friends. Thanks very much indeed for listening. And John, thank you. Cheers. Thank you, Adrian.